Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm tired of lying, peeping and hiding. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf, and I have lied. I've bent the truth, exaggerated, even told half-truths, whatever those are. It doesn't matter how you frame it, they're all lies. And you probably do it too. We ebb and flow with our lying, right? Sometimes we do it to fit in, to soften the blow, to avoid discomfort. Maybe we do it to look better, or to hurry things up, or to feel safe. Kids are really bad at it, except when they're really good at it. But no matter the age, some lie more than others. So today, you're going to meet two people who've struggled with pathological lying, including one man whose lying got so out of hand it made national headlines, and one woman who used poetry to be honest with herself and the rest of the world. But before we meet them, let's get our story straight about what pathological lying is and isn't. Dr. Christian Hart teaches courses in deception and forensic psychology and conducts research primarily on lying and deception at Texas Women's University. He's also the co-author of Pathological Lying, Theory, Research, and Practice. Two notes before we get into all this. According to Dr. Hart, the terms pathological and compulsive lying are interchangeable. And at times in our conversation, you'll hear him mention our second guest, Chris. He didn't work directly with Chris, but he was consulted for a New York Times article that covered Chris's experience. Okay, so how do we define a pathological liar and how many lies does it take to be considered one? Yeah, we've uh, talked to therapists. We've talked to people who've just interacted with pathological liars. We've talked to pathological liars themselves and kind of the number that we're homing in on is around five or more lies per day seems to be kind of the excessive extreme. And so when we're talking about pathological lying, um, we're talking usually about people who are lying a lot, but the way the term gets thrown around, sometimes what we're talking about is people who may not lie a lot, but they tell extremely consequential lies, lies that cause really bad things to happen for other people. But in the process of writing our, our book, one of our goals was to come together with a definition of what pathological lying is. And so when we looked at all this historical research that's been done for you know over 125 years, what we found was that there were about 17 definitions we could find. And not the only commonality between them is these people lie a lot. <laughs> and so, so what we decided to do is to try to characterize pathological lying in the same way that other psychopathologies are characterized. And so psychologists and psychiatrists define um, mental disorders as clinically significant disturbances in thought, emotion, and feelings 
that leads to distress for the individual or causes um, some sort of disruption in their lives, usually like their social lives, their work lives, and so forth. And so that's the way we characterize pathological lying is it's a, a significantly, clinically significant disturbance and lying and honesty patterns that can lead to distress for the individual or disturbance in their life. So a good deal of lying quantitatively and also that the lies can interrupt the well-being of a person making their way through this world and the people around them that they're lying to. Yeah. And so we don't really have a, a cutoff number. If you tell this many lies, you're a pathological liar. But the the frequency is certainly one of the tells that we look at that, that inform us about whether someone has a problem with honesty. So there's the DSM, which is this big book that says, here are some acknowledged uh, variations on the theme of being human, and that cause people problems. Is that about a good, nice, broad way to say what the DSM is? Yeah, it's a it's a working group of of people who are supposedly smart on the topic have come together and decided what's a disorder and what's not a disorder. Right, and it's been wrong, or it's been uh, not well informed previously. Like we've homosexuality was in the DSM, and that whoops, whoopsie, not quite right. Where does pathological lying uh, lie in terms of the DSM and the overall field's idea of whether or not this is real? Yeah, so it's um, it's not a, a diagnosis, a standalone diagnosis within the DSM, and but rather it's, it's listed as a a trait, a potential trait or characteristic of some other disorders like antisocial personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. You know, we, we conducted a study with about 300 therapists uh, that we published uh, a year or two ago. And, and we asked therapists, you know, do you think it, pathological lying should be listed as a standalone diagnosis? About half of them said, yeah, they did. Um, but um, yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be enough agreement about it being a standalone disorder for the people who decide what's going to go into the DSM to include it, at least at this point. What would you like to see? This is where I probably part ways a little bit with my co-author. He's a strong advocate for its inclusion in the DSM. I think I'm a little bit more reserved. I, I probably want to see a lot more work done on the topic. It's um, a topic that hasn't received a lot of research attention. Before we're going to start talking about including it in the DSM, I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done to to show that it is for many people, a distinct disorder and not just uh, a part of a personality disorder, for example. What do we know about how this starts in a person's brain and behavior? Well, we know that lying for most people starts very early. Most people start lying between the ages of two and three. They're usually really bad liars at that point, easy to detect, but then they quickly get good at it. So by the time you know, kids reach adolescence, uh, they can usually fool their their parents and teachers with their lies. And and so lying really seems to take off in childhood. And, um, and it's actually, it peaks, you know, if we look at the, the, how often people lie, they lie most often in late adolescence. And then once they reach adulthood, it kind of starts to drop off. Um, but it doesn't do that for everyone. Some people maintain this trajectory of high levels of lying. Um, well into adulthood. And so why do those people keep lying? 
I think it's, we don't really have enough information to, to um, inform us about that. There is some evidence that um, dishonesty is a heritable trait, meaning um, if someone has biological parents who are very dishonest, they, they tend to have offspring who are dishonest as well. But that heritability is it accounts for maybe about 30% of the variance that we see in lying. Plus, like, how do you tell there's the... There's maybe a genetic component about aspects of a mental illness, but there's also the environment you're raised in. I know that I'm asking you an impossible question to answer, but like <laughs> you've got dishonest parents, you're they're, of course they're going to teach their kids how to lie, among other things. Yeah, well, what we see is that if people, if they, if we have two dishonest parents and they put their child up for adoption into a home where the their primary caregivers are honest, we still see the heritable effects that is uh, and, and that's true of most psychological traits the, there's a biological a genetic component as well as an environmental component it looks like with dishonesty the environmental component probably um, plays a much stronger role than the genetic component does but it's always going to be a little bit of both how do compulsive liars discover that they are compulsive liars do they have to get caught or do they always know or or have they successfully lied to themselves and they never know like what where's where where does that spread go all of the research seems to suggest that um, pathological liars know that they're lying so it's not that they're unaware of what they're doing um, in some cases they report that they hear the lie coming out of their mouth before they even think about it but that's not actually how most of our communication happens you know we, we're not carefully planning every sentence we're going to utter. But yeah, so I, I do think that people like Chris are aware that they're lying. You know, they have regrets about it. And they say, like, I don't know, in the moment, it seems like a good idea. But, you know, right after I say it, I wish I hadn't said it. Um, so it might be a, a bit of impulsivity behind it. But there's it certainly seems to be intentional in most cases. When we suspect someone in our life may be a compulsive liar, what in the world could we possibly do about it? You know, one of the most effective strategies is just to confront the lying directly. You know, most of us don't like to be called out for our bad behavior. It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. And so what we see is that most people care about the reputation they're cultivating. And if they see they're starting to cultivate a reputation for being a dishonest person, they'll oftentimes go in the in the complete opposite direction in order to try to preserve or regain some of that or recover from some of that reputational damage that they've that they've incurred. And so I think that confronting people directly is is usually a really good strategy to use. In other cases, especially like in the case of Chris, who we've been talking about, the dishonesty seemed to be um, pretty clear instances where he was seeking attention. And so if we just withhold that attention when we think that someone's being dishonest, then the lying is no longer reinforced. And so that's a strategy used with children a lot is like if they're telling tall tales, just act interested in the stories that appear to be truthful ones and kind of ignore and don't um, emotionally reinforce those ones that seem to be falsehoods. 
After all these years that you've been looking into this, do you think you are good at detecting when someone's lying? And if so, how can I get better? Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of charlatans that will talk about, here's how you can spot a liar. And what they offer is pithy advice about looking for you know, facial cues and fidgeting and, you know, looking in this direction or that direction. But all of the research on um, detecting dishonesty indicates that those are effectively useless tools to try to detect when someone's lying. So if we look at studies examining body language and verbal cues, what we find is that people perform only slightly above chance levels when they're trying to detect when someone's lying versus telling the truth. So for example, if I show you videos of someone who's lying and videos of someone who's telling the truth, you do almost as well just flipping a coin as you would using your discerning eye to figure out who is the liar here. And so if we think you know, 50% accuracy would be chance levels, what we see in research is people achieve about 54% accuracy on average. So most people are horrible at detecting lying by using behavioral cues. And that's not just the untrained eye. Even police detectives don't perform uh, any better than college students do at this type of task. And so what we have found is that if you want to detect lying, you shouldn't focus on how people are behaving, but rather you should focus on what they're saying and specifically look for evidence that what they're saying is contradicted by other evidence that we know, or that what they're saying is contradicted by something they've previously said. Using the informational content is the key to detecting lying. And when we ask people, think of the last time you caught someone lying to you, how did you catch them? I believe it's about 2% of people say, well, they were, they're behaving in some strange way. And that's how I knew. That's not how people detect in the real world. People detect lying by thinking to themselves, this doesn't quite add up. This doesn't quite make sense. And digging a little a deeper, probing, asking some more questions, checking with third parties who can confirm or disconfirm the claims. So that's how we detect lying. I've found in my own experience that the thing that, that has helped me catch lying more often than anything else is someone just says something that strikes me as strange or weird. It just doesn't quite add up. And that to me is always a clue that I should dig a little deeper here or I should check with other sources. Do lie detectors work? Lie detectors work. They're not, not flawless. And that's why they're, they're not used in, in court cases to determine someone's guilt or innocence. I'd say the most comprehensive research on it suggests that um, the accuracy rate is probably above 80%, which is pretty good. Um, the problem is, is that there's a lot of false positives. Uh, lie detectors will indicate that someone's lying when they're absolutely not lying. So we need to be cautious in their use. No one wants to accuse someone of being a liar when they're being truthful. And, and when we have tools like that that give us a high false positive rate, we certainly run a risk. Since you've been in this realm for so long, has it affected the ways in which you lie? You know, I think it's made me a more honest person, if anything. I think I've generally tried to be honest, and I like being a genuine person. And one of the things I've learned in my research is that 
most of the reasons that people lie is because they're afraid of harsh judgment from others. And most of that is not because they've done something really awful. It's that they just feel like they're inadequate. And what I've found is that when people are just genuine, they actually get exactly what they're trying to do by lying or what they're trying to get through lying. That is, people love being around individuals who are genuine. It makes them feel comfortable, makes them feel accepted. And so I think what I've learned is that um, lying is is a, a crutch that we all fall back on. We all use it for various reasons, sometimes just out of expediency. Sometimes we just feel inadequate. But if we just push through and trust that honesty is going to work, it usually does. Yeah, it's funny. You make me think about how when you're honest about something hard and uncomfortable and sh- you, you may feel shameful, it tends to make people like you more and want to be closer to you. And then you demonstrate to them, this is what it's like to say something really that I'm not proud of or to own up to something that I'm not proud of. And then they may be better at doing it. And the chain continues, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I think you're exactly right. When we trust someone enough to be honest with them, they, they typically return that trust and are honest in return. Well, Dr. Chris Hart, thanks for talking with me. Thanks so much for having me. I really uh, enjoyed talking with you quite a bit. We'll have a link to where you can pre-order his new book, Big Liars, what psychological science tells us about lying and how you can avoid being duped at ctpublic.org audacious. When we get back, before you got help, what kind of lies did Chris Massamine tell his wife? I had told her that I was seeing somebody and that somebody who I was seeing was Kourtney Kardashian. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Wait, lies will bring you down and follow you to every town cause nothing happens here that doesn't happen there. So when you run, make sure you run to something and not away from cause lies don't need an aeroplane to chase you anywhere. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're meeting two people who are actually pretty honest about their struggles with pathological lying. Later, you'll meet Veronica Wild, who uses poetry to confront the truth behind her compulsive lying. But first, 
after a journalist discovered multiple lies in Chris Massamine's resume, all hell broke loose. After accomplishing some real honest-to-God success in the New York City theater scene, in 2019, Chris was named managing director of the Pioneer Theater Company in Salt Lake City. There, he was diagnosed with major depression, PTSD, and cluster B personality disorder, which often manifests in the form of exaggerations and lies, among other things. He resigned from his job, friends and colleagues stopped talking to him, and he and his wife moved back to New York to start over. He wrote an essay about his compulsive lying in Newsweek. And then a month and a half later, the New York Times did a profile on him. I asked him to talk about his earliest memory of lying. Here I was in second grade, and I got my first B plus on a test ever, and it was in math class. And I got in trouble because I got a B plus. I got grounded. My parents were upset with me. It was like a really big deal. And um, my idea of making this better was saying a couple of days later that essentially we had an assembly in school and the assembly part is true, but um, I decided in my own uh, way that it would be a little bit grander than it actually was. So the assembly had to do with like, I think it's like the Serengeti or something like that and, um, or the Savannah in Africa. And I was, um, when I took this to my parents, all of a sudden it was an assembly that had to do with the Lion King and the real assembly only ended with like a song from the Lion King. But in my version, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, who starred as Simba, was involved with it. And they were doing scenes from the Lion King. And this is before the Lion King musical happened. And then at the end, he asked for a volunteer to come up and sing with him. And of course, we now know also that Jonathan Taylor Thomas did not sing the vocals for The Lion King, but nobody knew that at the time. And um, that was my story to my parents is, oh, out of all the kids, I sang. And it wasn't completely out of the question because A, The Lion King had just kind of occurred uh, that year. B, they were on a press tour. And C, my explanation made sense, which is they picked some of the schools within the area that they would be doing this as a publicity stunt, essentially. And here I am at the second grade with this elaborate story, essentially. And my mother ended up maybe believing me, maybe not. I'm not 100% sure. My father definitely did not believe me. But I think um, ultimately, you know, that was kind of in my head, like, oh, if things go wrong, I can just go into this defense mechanism of creating something that can actually not only get me out of it, but make me feel like I'm worthy and I'm enough. Because that's where it all kind of stemmed from is I never really felt like I was enough. I was always beaten down. I was always, I was bullied. I was like a lanky, nerdy kid. I was into video games. And of course, later on in life, I would fabricate accolades and involvements with video games that I wasn't involved with. But it, it all kind of came full circle. But ultimately, you know, that, that was my first story was this elaborate story about an assembly that had a celebrity in it in a school that, why would they be there? When you would lie and come up with these stories, it's funny. I want to say, like, when you would lie and sort of bend the truth, but the, the fact is they're lies. I'm trying to, like, <laughs> I want to bend it so it's not such a harsh word, but it is a harsh word because it's true. But Kion, to be honest with you, it is lying, you know, and that's something that took me a long time to kind of come to terms with. Like, in the same uh, respect, recently in a publication, they called me a disgraced producer, and I am. And it's just something that I need to come to terms with. Like, I've led myself to this place. So um, a pathological liar I am, 
We don't have to say fabrications. We don't have to say bend the truth. It's um, it's lying, but it, it's lying that's habitual and compulsive, which separates it out from lying with cause and for gain. Thank you. When you would lie, was it like an addiction? Yeah, and it still is. Absolutely. Uh, and even today, still, every time I'm with friends or in a social setting, or if somebody's telling a story or I want to fit in, I immediately want to jump in and I want to be able to tell the bigger story. I want to be the center of attention for engagement because that's where I get my self-esteem and confidence from. And nowadays it's, it's very hard, but I am doing well with shirking away from it and just keeping quiet. If I asked you to pull the camera back on your life and offer up a pie chart of all the times you've lied or lived a lie, how big is that slice of the pie? And how much of the slice is you were being totally authentic? I, I want to say 50-50. And I'll, I'll say that because I would say most of the lies still are seated in some truth. Uh, and they've been more elaborate, grandiose exaggerations than flat-out lies. Now, there were flat-out lies. I did not climb Mount Everest, although I did absolutely everything to doctor and pretend that I did. But those were far and in between. What were some of your other biggest lies, the ones that really stand out in your life? Well, this was kind of big back in the day. Um, one of my earlier lies is when I was being kind of bullied at school, I eventually told my group of bulliers that I was related to Hulk Hogan, the wrestler from WWF, when that was a big thing. And um, of course, I had done my homework on him. So they asked me questions and I had the answers. And they left me alone for a while until we went on a field trip. And my mother was a chaperone. And they asked my mother. And then that fell through. And I started getting my uh, my butt beat again. But yeah, there's been a lot of ridiculous lies over the years. I mean, one of the things I am is a workaholic. And I, I struggle with that a lot. Like um, in all my jobs in New York, essentially, I was working around the clock through the hours. And I really couldn't juggle both the personal life and the professional life. And I was climbing so fast and furious in the professional life. And I was doing so well in that, that I wanted to push my wife away, which in retrospect was the dumbest thing. Cause my wife is my biggest supporter and my champion. And um, I had told her at the time that I was seeing somebody and that somebody who I was seeing was Courtney Kardashian. And that is a ridiculous way over the top lie when you say seeing, you mean like hanging out with? No, no, seeing like in a relationship with. And, you know, it's kind of ridiculous because who in the world makes up an affair and let alone makes an affair with somebody that big? It makes no sense. But I, I hired voice actors. I had dummy email accounts. And, you know, I was just trying to push my wife away when the reality is I should have just been open with my wife and said, I can't deal with both of these things. Now, again, in retrospect, it was the stupidest decision because I love my wife so much and I loved her even then. I just I didn't know how to handle both because here I was at work sleeping at the office like multiple days in a row, just like pushing ahead and not really understanding work life balance. 
Now, of course, when you would get kind of on a roll with a lie, I bet there was a part of you that's like, yes, like I, I got this. This I am really good at this. And I, I also imagine there are times when you would feel shame. What would you do when you would feel like, what am I doing? What would happen next? It's funny because like the, the moments of exuberance were actually less about I'm good at lying and more like me convincing myself, oh yeah, yeah, I did win that award or I did do that thing just to feel better about myself. But there's always shame that's come with it. Like almost immediately after, it's like, why did I do that? Why did I say that? But now it's a living lie. And instead of being like a normal person who doesn't have this compulsion and disorder, I lived with it and I would continue to live with it. Even if it was a stupid lie, like if, if I said, you know, my favorite color is blue and my favorite color happens to be like a, a dark foresty green, I would hold that lie and it would make no sense to somebody who, who's on the outside, but that's the kind of stuff we deal with in pathological lying is we don't release and the shame builds and builds. And then there's this moment of buoying when the next lie comes to protect that lie. But then also it's like, I'm living with so many lies in my brain. It's, it was so confusing and convoluted and ultimately just coming public with it was the best thing I could do. Um, not only for myself to live an authentic life, but so I didn't have to keep track of decades worth of lies. I mean, the detail and the remembering and the notes, it was like, it was like another job onto itself and an unending job. When you would lie about one thing over and over again, or maybe one story would grow and grow, would you ever forget that they were lies? Like, would you ever get lost in the stories and truly believe your own lies? Yeah, I still am in many of them. Um, I mean, I've lived with some of these things so long that they really have become life and they have become real to me. And um, it's sometimes very, very sad when I realize that it's not true. When I realize that it is true, it's like, wow, I did something. That's great. But um, otherwise, it, it, it is a little bit like losing a part of me. And then that's even more sad because it's like, well, instead of doing that, I could have actually lived life in that area a little bit more instead of creating something that didn't actually happen. When you came out about your pathological lying uh, in your Newsweek article, and then the New York Times wrote a profile about you, you got predictably some pretty hateful feedback from readers. How much of you was like, damn it, you all lie. I'm the one saying I have a problem with it. Well, I mean, that is the thing that's very interesting is we're all liars. Some of us can help it, which is much better and something, you know, I wish I had a better control over. But yeah, I mean, frankly, every time I pipe my voice up again in a public forum, the abuse starts again. And I think that's just going to continue and continue until several years down the line, and, and I'm going to take whatever antagonism is thrown at me. But yeah, it's been an incredibly long road with that. And I don't think people are ready to understand that pathological lying is something that is real. 
Right. I think we throw that phrase around a lot. I mean, I remember hearing plenty of times, oh, he's a pathological liar, but I have no idea what that is. It's used in a detrimental way. It's like, here it is again, pathology. And it's like, people say, oh, pathological liar. Oh, they're an evil, conniving person. No, that is not a pathological liar. That's a person with intent who lies. That's different. So what does your pie chart look like now? I would like to hope at least it's like 90% true and 10% BS. I'd like it to be less than that, but I know I'm being radically honest at points and that's not exactly taking particularly well. So, so what I'm kind of learning now is not to lie, but to tell the truth in acute ways that are more compassionate and empathetic. By coming out about all this, you're also risking people never believing you again. Like you're, if you and I had never met and somehow we ended up uh, at the bar together just chatting, you'd be able to lie to me. And I wouldn't know because I don't know your story. But because you're coming out about this, you're speaking to me about it. You're going to continue to speak out about it. Now you are the guy who's a pathological liar. And I guess you can't believe anything he says, which is sort of a cruel twist on you coming out about this, how do you hold that? I thought by, you know, actually telling people that this is actually a real condition, that I could not only tell that story and hopefully resonate with some people who are feeling that, but also help push forward the agenda of better mental health education. And by telling my story, I just want people to kind of understand they're not alone in this. So that was kind of the choice was you can be a con or you could take the chance of just being upfront about it. And like you said, like if we were at a bar together and we were, you know, talking, yeah, everything you hear could be assumed and perceived as a lie by me. And why wouldn't it be? It's hard. Will people think I'm a liar forever? Maybe. And that sucks. That really, really sucks. But that's where accountability partners come in. And that's where you actually, you know, make a commitment to do what's right. And if you do lie, you don't make that big of a deal about it because it's not going to be grandiose this time. It, it, it might be something that slips up or something I say that is to make somebody feel better or good. But um, the days of climbing Mount Everest and dating reality TV stars and, and much, much more than that even, those days are over. Do you miss that, Chris, sometimes? Absolutely. He was amazing. He did things that nobody else could do. I mean, he, yeah, it was a very cool fictional character, but nonetheless a fictional character. And um, it's time for me to get on with real life and live life as authentically as I can. Putting the show together, we had a lot of people in mind. We wanted to talk to the the indie author who faked her own death, uh, Elizabeth Finch, the Grey's Anatomy writer who lied about having cancer, Anna Delvey, of course, who posed as a wealthy heiress. And I don't know what or if they have diagnoses, but all of them to some degree seem self-aware, like you are, of their compulsion to lie. They own up to it. But because there are people who are hearing your story now, and they are hearing themselves in you big time right now. And they're thinking, oh my God, 
how do I get out of this? How do I, where do I even start? What would have helped you get to where you are without having to go through the difficult times you went through to get here? Honestly, it would have been having just the support structure in place and to just embrace that, yes, this is a part of who you are. This is a part that you can help manage. It's not a part that you can probably fully change because it will always live with you. But how much better will it be to get it under control? And how much healthier will that be for your relationships in your life moving forward? Well, Chris Massamine, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. After the break, how one woman faced the truth about her lies through poetry. I feel like I'm the most honest version of myself now. And that's because of starting to say the things that I hope no one would ever find out. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. A quick note, a small portion of this next conversation contains some adult references that may not be suitable for kids. You'll probably get a sense that when our next guest, Veronica Wild, is talking, she's telling the truth. She didn't always, though. Veronica is a poet and spoken word performer who spent much of her adult life reconciling with her past as a pathological liar. At the age of eight, she moved from Ukraine to Canada, and after getting bullied in middle school, she was sent away to a gifted school. She wanted to befriend her gifted peers, who knew virtually nothing about her, and Veronica used that to her advantage. She began lying, telling her classmates she did drugs, that she knew gang members, and even that she was a passenger in a drive-by shooting. But I think it was coming from, like, all of these things were coming from this place of, hey, I've seen people who talk about this stuff get approval from talking about these things in the media and then I have this urge to be close to my classmates and I also have this urge to be close to the people of my neighborhood and I felt like I couldn't be close to either one like I felt like I was just caught in between like I had no friends in my area and it felt like I had so few friends in the school that I was going to so I just I just told these stories about who I was because I didn't feel like I didn't feel like I could tell them about what it was like being an immigrant. You know what I mean? (laughs) Just felt like it was coming out of out of nowhere. Like I didn't feel like my um, my stories had a place. I just wanted to be normal. Like I wanted my name to be spelt normal. I just wanted to be like a normal person who fit in. But in the absence of being able to do that, I wanted to stand out, but not with my truth. Right. Like I was just a kid and. I just wanted to be loved, but it just became this mask. It became this like theatrical mask. Like I was just building this character and it was full of inconsistencies, just full of loopholes. And 
it's amazing that I just told people these stories, just thinking that uh, nobody could see through it. So what was a turning point for you when you were able to see what you're doing and also say no more? Basically, a friend of mine in like 2011, on February 8th, my friend Catherine had killed herself. And I was thinking about it every day. I was just like so obsessed with this idea. Like my drug use was like out of control. Like I wasn't sleeping. And I remember I went upstairs and I went to my room and I had this full length mirror. I sat down on the floor and I looked myself in the eyes. And it was like this weird like Hamlet moment. Like I must have like dissociated to some degree because I can actually see myself like sitting on my bedroom floor, like contemplating life and death. And I came to this like conclusion, you know, I was like, you know what, I have to change. Like, I just have to change something. And then I went to go put on makeup and I had this chair and I like wheeled it in front of the the big full length mirror. And I, and I went to go put on eyeliner. And it was like one of the only times that I would really look myself directly in the eyes was like when I was putting on eyeliner and I'm like about to do it. And the eyeliner is like hovering over my eye. And I just realized that like all of these issues that I'm having, like cannot be fixed with eyeliner. Like it just felt so stupid to put eyeliner on it. You know what I mean? Like you cannot fix it like this. And I started noticing like when I was talking to people, just like the words that were coming out of my mouth, I was like, that wasn't true. You know what I mean? Like, why did I say that? Like, why did I say seven when it was five? Like, why did I say I slept for four hours when I slept for six hours? Like, why did I say that? There's no point. And it just made sense to like work on these things together too. Like I worked on accepting like my natural face, but then I also worked on accepting like my flaws. And I realized that I had a serious problem with like negative thinking about myself. Like the more that I would observe myself in the mirror, like I realized that I was really distorting the image of myself and making myself into some like my natural appearance into some kind of just really negative thing like I I don't think I'm not trying to say that all women who wear makeup feel this way but that's what it was to me you know it was like covering up this like self-hatred that I felt for myself and not even well enough and trying to observe my behaviors like I would notice when I would notice when I had like the impulse to reject a truth And it wasn't just about like telling lies. It was also like how I had become so cruel to myself and others in the first place. Like I was rejecting the reality of emotions, but I feel like it wasn't until poetry really took a hold of me. And I started in secret feeling like I didn't want anybody to see it, but like in secret writing these poems about things that I was feeling. That's when the lying was, has really been at its lowest. Like I feel like I still, I think like anyone else, I catch myself trying to lie to myself about how serious something is or something, but I feel like I'm the most honest version of myself now. And that's because of starting to say the things that I hope no one would ever find out. (laughs) Well, speaking of poetry, I would love to hear something that you've written that speaks to that honesty. I can read you. These are the things we don't talk about. And I actually did not come up with that prompt. There's a poet named Caitlin Conlin who came up with that prompt on Instagram. And uh, writing that poem was really revolutionary for me. Just understanding how honest you can really be and how you can use poetry to conceal something just enough that you're not saying it 
like 100% bluntly, you know, you're still being honest, but you're protecting yourself as much as you need to, you're making the truth, you're presenting the truth, however it is you need to in order to feel safe. And um, I feel like this is definitely a prompt, like anybody who's listening, who's like, I, I want to work on this, like definitely start by writing up these are the things we don't talk about poem. <laughs> the things we don't talk about. The nights of pretending, yes. The empath who's a narcissist. That 3 a.m. with the knife and the cops. The blood on the walls. How he thinks the scars are my fault, how that might be true. His alphabetized incest porn. Her shrouded noose. Salt-covered wooden spoons. Lying about rape. Saying nothing when it actually happens. Replacing kisses with cigarettes. Ghosting as a request for changed behavior. Sex as validation for the fragile ego. Guilt about not reporting when he strikes again. Community as self-sabotage. Food as intimacy. Emulating misogyny to join the boys club. Casual sex stories that pry open your thighs safe spaces that re-traumatize, lies that win slams, envying the person you appear to be on Instagram, waiting for fame to call, attention as the most potent drug of them all. Thank you. It's like always different lines that get me, but there was a line in it this time that I feel like I'm just gonna even have to sit with like I'm even confused about why that was the one today of all days that got me so so much and I think that's the value of poetry as medicine we can be so honest and then read that honesty back to ourselves like a year later two years later five years later and then see something new in it because it's so honest to your experience as a human being, you keep finding something new in it. And that's something that a lie, it just can't do. Like the lie like shape shifts in order to fit into the cracks, wherever it needs to go in order to be accepted, but it can't teach you anything. It can't help you evolve. It can't make you feel anything real. And yeah, I really feel like just being more honest about how much I feel like I hurt people during that time. That's what I feel a poem coming on about right now. <laughs> I feel like that's what's going to come out of this for me. Just, you know, being honest about those things and saying like, hey, this is what hurts. It hurts to have hurt. For those who are listening to this conversation who are aware that they lie a lot more than they think is normal or more than they want to for people who are compulsive liars and for the people who love them and care about them and wish they would stop. What advice do you have? Oh, like, of course, I feel like people should seek help from other people and get support. But when it comes to this specific problem, you have to hold yourself accountable. You have to come back and be like, like, I mean, if you're trying to work on not lying and you're not coming back to people, especially during the first like three to six months and you're not saying hey sorry I said this thing I don't know why I said that I'm I mean this thing 
actually instead. If you're not doing that on a regular basis, then you're still lying because stuff is going to come out of your mouth and you didn't mean for it to. And um, I guess in terms of somebody who loves a person who lies, like I think you just have to be really aware of the difference between a person who really wants to change and a person who's just like continuing to keep you as part of their dysfunction you know somebody can be aware of their dysfunction but then like keeping you roped into the dysfunction by telling you that they're working on it like you have to see how often are they admitting to the fact that they just lied like that's like the measurement because if you're working on it that's what's going to happen you're going to correct yourself you're going to make mistakes how often are they admitting to having made mistakes how often are you admitting to having made mistakes how often are you saying sorry that's really a good <laughs> I think, measurement for everyone Veronica Wild, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's so nice to meet you, Coyote. Thank you so much. <laughs> we'll have a link to Veronica's book, Love and Gaslight, at ctpublic.org. Deep thanks to Ellen Berry, whose article on Chris and Veronica and featuring Dr. Hart was the inspiration for this episode. We'll have a link to her piece on our website, too. Khalil Rahman came up with the idea for this episode and produced it with the utmost integrity. Production help also came from Jessica Severin Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, and thanks to our interns, Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. If you like this episode, you'll probably really like the one we did featuring my conversation with a guy who went viral after he pretended to be the world-famous megachurch pastor Joel Osteen at one of his events. And you'll hear what happened when he got caught. You can hear all of our one-of-a-kind conversations wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your truth on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, or you can send an honest email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. I'm learning to say I'm angry when I'm very mad. I'm learning to shout, I'm getting it out, I'm happy, learning exactly how I feel inside of me. I'm learning to know the truth, I'm learning to tell the truth, discovering truth will make me free. Are you discovering the truth about you? Well, I'm still discovering the truth about me. That's what we do as we keep on growing in life.